You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. So I want to take you back to your high school chemistry class for a minute. Did anybody just throw up in their mouth a little bit? Uh, I was always a good student. I've always been a good student. I'm nerdy like that. But my two least favorite and worst subjects were always math and science. Guess what chemistry is? Both. Both, That's right. It's a mashup of math and science. I didn't do so well in chemistry. Hated every minute of it. Didn't understand it. Still don't. But do you remember uh, the, the periodic table? Right? Uh, it, it, it's that chart that shows all of the different elements. It was actually put together by Russian chemist uh, Mendeleev in 1869. And, and over the years has been added to and, and you know, refined. And so now uh, it shows 118 elements uh, 92 of which occur in the natural world. Interestingly enough, only six of those are necessary or essential for life. Right? Those six are, are carbon, uh, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. All right? Did those ring a bell? Are you with me now? You're like, oh yeah, that class, I slept through it. I forgot about that one, right? Those are the six elements. All organisms on earth, including you and me, uh, contain those six. They're, they're known as the, listen to this, building blocks of life, right? You need those six for life to be possible. But what kind of life, right? What kind of life? Those elements are the things that you and I and this world need to, to exist, um, but they say nothing about the quality of that existence, just that there is the, the, the probability of, of life. To get at that, to get at the quality of life, we need a, a different set of elements, right? We need a different list. And as your pastor, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say, I think the Bible gives us one. Uh, I think there's a list that even if you're not sure what you believe, right? You're, maybe you're a guest with us this morning. You're like, I don't really know what I think about God or church or Jesus or the Bible. And this stuff. No matter what you think or believe, this is a list I think everyone in the world can look at and say, yeah. Like if, if there were more of those things in this world, if I, had, if I had more of those in my life, I wouldn't just be alive. I would have a better quality of life. I would enjoy life more. And so what we're going to do in this series, we're going to look at that list. There's nine things. Paul calls them fruits. Uh, there's nine fruits on the list. We're going to kind of double click on those or, or do a deep dive on those because I think these are the building blocks of a good life. Uh, so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. If you're using the Bible app, go to more, click on events and find our church. All of it will be loaded in there. But Galatians 5, this is a letter. This is the New Testament. 
right? So go all the way through the Old Testament, go through, uh, you know, the four dudes, as we like to call them, the Gospels. Um, keep going to the letters of Paul. And if you were with us this summer, right, we were on a pretty epic road trip all summer long. Galatia should ring a bell. That's where we spent quite a bit of time on our summer road trip with Paul. So what this is, is a letter that he wrote back to those people um, that he interacted with the first time through the province of Galatia. Okay, so Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to go down to verse 22 through, through 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or some translations say patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. So if you haven't heard of the fruit of the Spirit, this is the list. These are the nine things. And we are going to get really cozy with these. We're going to get really familiar uh, with these over the next nine weeks. And so how about to just start us off again? We've already gone to chemistry class, so we might as well keep up being in school together. I'm going to ask you to say these out loud with me. All right, let's just get these ingrained in there. Ready? The fruit of the Spirit, what are they? It is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's pretty good. This is the 10 o'clock service. You guys have had a little extra sleep, a little more coffee. I appreciate that about you. That was really good, All right? Now, when you look at that list, can you see what I mean by like, no one would look at that list and go, I got a problem with those. I got a bone to pick. These are terrible, <laughs> right? Paul, he has a... a he has a cooler way of saying what I'm trying to say, right? He says, against these things, against all of those nine, there is no law. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? You don't need, you don't need a law about these things. Now, the people he's writing to, talking to, knew all about laws. There were essentially two groups in his audience in Galatia. You had Romans, Greco-Romans who had converted to Christ and have now are followers of Jesus. And of course, they're coming from a very elaborate system of laws in, in, in the Roman code and how do you live and treat people and what's the, you know, what's the rules of the courts and all those kinds of things. They would have been very familiar with all kinds of laws, right? And then you've got this other audience, uh, Jewish Christians, right? People who used to be Jews are still Jews in a lot of ways, but are now followers of Jesus and they lived their whole life according to a set of law. Right? The Torah, the Jewish law that they've been memorizing since they were kids. I mean, the law is a big deal if you're a Jew. In fact, that's part of the issue in Galatians Paul is, is wrestling with. There's some people uh, that theologians call them Judaizers, but they are basically Jews coming in and telling people that they needed to be more Jewish uh, in order to be saved. And, and Paul is arguing against that in the book of Galatians. So to both of these groups... Right, the Greco-Romans and, and the Jewish Christians, he says, let me tell you about some things that don't need to be, to be governed over. Right? You don't need an elaborate set of rules for these things. I mean, think about it. Look at, look at the list. Can, can you imagine someone just saying, you know, officer, arrest this man. He's been far too kind uh, there's no law against that, right? What do you want me to do? Or all these people in this church, man, they are just so full of joy. Somebody ought to lock them up. Like, it's annoying. It's like, well, you can be annoyed by it. But again, there's, 
There's no law. You don't need laws for these things. In fact, if, if all of us operated out of this list, like every hour of every day that we woke up and lived this world, if we all 100% of the time lived out these nine fruits of the Spirit, we probably wouldn't even need laws, would we? We wouldn't need courts and lawyers and lawyer fees. But when you, when you fail at living out this list, right, when you do the opposite of some of these words or when you live by a different list that Paul's gonna give us here in a minute, that's when it's like, oh man, we, we need some rules. We need some laws. People are hurting people. Things, bad things are happening. We, we need to govern this. And here's the list. Right before this, Paul gives another list in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, the acts of the flesh, and we're going to come back. We'll define that in a minute. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Those are, those are the kinds of things that require us to have laws, right? These are the kinds of things that cause problems in our lives, cause problems in the world and in the lives of other people. Paul calls them acts of the flesh. Now, put, let's, uh, Sherry, let's put that list back up there real quick. One of the things that's always bothered me about this list are the, the types of things that get mixed together because in my mind, there's a clear hierarchy, right? Some things are way worse than others. The sin, there's some sins that are just obviously bad and going to lead to nowhere good, right? And, and, and then there's other kind of hidden ones that we don't really think that much about because you can't really see them. But it's just, it's kind of weird, right? You look at this list and you're like, right alongside, you know, things like being selfish or uh, dissension, causing division, right? Causing division or... or uh, you know, let's see here. Um, jealousy, yeah. Those are like, I mean, those are bad, right? But like, they're not orgy level bad. <laughs> right? It's like, if you're offended, I just said orgies, by the way. It's in the Bible. It's not, I'm just, it's right there. I'm just reading. But it's, we do this, don't we? We're like, well, I mean, some of those on that list, yeah, whew. And then we dismiss the more hidden sins, the ones people don't know about, can't really see. And we kind of, they're, they're okay, right? And Paul's like, actually, they're all part of the same problem. They all actually stem from the same thing. They're what he calls acts of the flesh. And, and the easiest way I can define that, acts of the flesh are when you and I allow sin to run the show. Right? In the Bible, sin is not just a thing we do. It's not just an action. It is a, it is a nature. It is a, a, a wiring that's got bent the wrong direction that causes us to sin. So it's like you sin, which bends you further, which causes you to sin more. It is both an action and a nature, right? And so the acts of the flesh are that, that nature. The opposite is what he says in verse 25. If you look down lower in verse 25, Paul uses this phrase, Keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so if you read this whole chapter, and I would encourage you this week to, to really study it, open it up, read Galatians 5. There's this tug of war happening between 
our flesh, the sinly nature part of us, the flesh, and the spirit of God in us. There's this like battle. Anybody ever experienced this, felt this in your own life? Like I want to, but I don't, or I don't wanna do that, but I keep doing it. Paul talks about that too in Romans, right? There's this battle happening between the flesh and the spirit. And what he says is the way that we win that battle, the way these fruit happen in our lives is we keep in step with the spirit and we crucify the flesh. That's strong language, isn't it? Not like, oh, we just avoid sin. No, no, no. We crucify our flesh. We kill it off. And we replace it and we keep in step with the spirit. And that's how, that's where these fruit are found. Right now, they're fruit. They're called fruit for a reason. Um, in the Willamette Valley, we know a thing or two about produce, right? If there's one thing that we do well here in the valley, we grow stuff. Not everywhere in the world can grow, like we can grow anything here, even things you don't want, like blackberries. Like you're like, I've done everything. Like they just grow, you know, you, or you, you plant just like, oh, I only planted like, like two plant, uh, two strawberries. I don't know. And then you go back out the next day and you're like, I have a yard of strawberries. Like what happened? right? We grow things. Um, do, you have a, do you have like a local favorite fruit? How many is Marion berries? Anybody, any Marion berry fans? Some other kind of, all the berries, blueberries, blackberries, boysenberries, all the berries, right? Uh, I'm trying, Hermiston watermelon? Watermelon? Someone just said coffee. That's true. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide. Uh, watermelon, watermelon, peaches, ooh, what kind of people? Red Haven? I'm a Red Haven guy. I'm whatever you're making guy. 9822 Fox, just drop it off. Anyway, uh, hazelnuts. Did you know hazelnut is a fruit? Didn't know that. It is. Did you know 99% of all hazelnuts in the United States are from Oregon? Did you know you were going to come to church and get a bunch of hazelnut trivia? Probably not. Like, it's kind of silly, right? Some of you are just mad I didn't call them filberts, right? You're just all offended about it. I've lived here 12 years and I still have no idea what that debate is and you can keep it. Like, I don't understand, like, relax. I don't know what you call it. It's a nut, okay? But like, we, we know a thing or two about, about crops, about producing fruit in the valley. Like, most crops take time. You don't just put a seed in the ground and walk out the next day and you're like, oh, there it is. They take the right conditions, the right soil conditions, the right, the right weather. Um, there's lots of weeding that has to happen, right? Sometimes spraying. If you're into that, if you're not cool, don't be mad at me, okay? Uh, there's you have, there, there's a, a process that has to happen from, from seed to fruit, right? In, in other words, fruits aren't created, they're cultivated, right? They're not created, they're cultivated, and we know this with the natural world, with crops and fruits and stuff like that. But sometimes I think we forget this when it comes to the spiritual fruit, when it comes to the work of God in our life. It doesn't just magically happen. It's not like, well, I showed up at church. I mean, I went that one Sunday. How come I'm not completely changed? You know, I signed up for a life group. I just thought, I mean, Betsy and Mike have been selling me on those life groups and I showed up that one time and I walked away and I... I didn't feel any different, you know? It, there, there's, a, there's a process that, and, and God often has to take us through things 
Some, some of these fruit only show up in our life when God takes us through things that we wouldn't maybe even choose to go through. He's, he's, gotta, he's gotta work some stuff in us. They could take a while. They can be difficult. But here, here's the good news, because all that sounds like, man, that sounds really hard. It, it is. The good news is you're never farming alone. It, it's never just like, well, you better get more patient. Figure it out. God is, is vested in these fruits, right? They're not the fruits of Mike. They're, they're not the fruits of Alita, right? They are the fruits of the Spirit, meaning God himself is the one who wants to work in you to like produce this stuff in your life. You're not doing this on your own. In fact, you can't. Isn't that good news? Maybe it doesn't sound like good news. It's good news to me. Have you ever tried to will your way to being at peace about something? <laughs> or like... Daggone it, I'm going to get more patient. You know, I'm just going to, like, how's that going for you? That doesn't work. Willpower alone will not produce these. These are fruit of the Spirit. These are things that God himself wants to do in us and with us. We participate. Listen to the language again. Keep in step with the Spirit. I, I can choose which way I step and walk and and. My choice needs to be to keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so if you look at this list, or when we were playing that video earlier today, and, and there was one that popped out on, at you, which, and I hope there was. We're gonna, we'll talk about that later. I hope there's one that God will wrestle with you a little bit about and say, that one right there, that's the fruit that I want to cultivate in your life. Your number one job is to stay connected to Jesus. It's, it's not to come out with like a 12-step game plan. Um, it, it's not to like, well, if I could, just, I could just listen to another podcast and read a book and do all that. Those things are great if those things keep you connected to Jesus, right? In John 15, Jesus has this imagery. He talks about how he is the vine, right? And we are the branches. He says, apart from me, you, you can't do anything. You can't bear these fruit unless you're connected to the vine, right? So that your number one job is to stay in step with the, in the spirit and allow him to cultivate in you what you cannot produce on your own, All right? Are you still with me? Okay, we had to lay a little bit of groundwork there. We're gonna have to come back to that, especially that John 15 passage again. I think that's just so important to realize when we talk about the fruit of the spirit, it is the fruit of the spirit. It's, it's, the, it's the thing God wants to do in you. Now, let's look at the first one together today. What is, what's the first fruit on the list? What was it? Aww. I matched my shirt. Did you notice? Yeah. There's going to be some coming up that I'm like, I don't have that color in my wardrobe. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Where do you start with love? I got like 20 minutes. Uh, where do you stop? How, how, do we, how, do we, uh, how do we divide this? It can be hard to define love, right? One of the questions in your group this week is how, how would you define love? To be honest, the first thing that came to my mind was this great classic Christian movie called Anchorman. Uh, not a Christian movie. Um, <laughs> but there's this scene, right, where Will Ferrell is trying to describe what being in love is like and these other bozos in the office are trying to like 
get him to tell him. And, and Steve Carell's character starts naming random objects like the rug and the death. And then he's like, I love lamp. All right? Do you know this scene? Some of you are like, I don't watch bad movies. My, uh, but like, like, he's like, no, I really, he, like, he keeps insisting, I really love lamp. Do you love lamp or are you just naming things that you see? I really love lamp. And you watch it and it's supposed to be absurd, right? You're supposed to walk away from the scene and go, that was so dumb. What was that? Because it's peeling back the layers a little bit for us to, to point out how superficial and flippant um, the word love has become, right? We just say it all the time. We use it in so many different, different ways that seem almost incompatible at times. And, and it's like, what is, do we really know what love means? Do we really know what it's supposed to look like? And I think part of our struggle is we have nothing outside of our own experience and our own opinion to define things, right? We live in a very hyper uh, individualistic culture where, where we are free to make our own decisions and definitions about, about everything. And so love is one of those things. Love is whatever I say it is. Love feels like whatever I think it feels like. I am the, the final referee uh, and judge as to whether or not you are being loving to me or not. And on, on the one hand, that feels very freeing, like I am free to decide that. And yet the fruit of that freedom has been a lot of confusion and pain. Like, yeah, I don't, wow, what is love even? Um, because you and I were never meant to bear the weight of definition work. Um, we were not meant to define good and evil and love and all of these things on our own. Prior to the fall, prior to sin, those things were just things we received from our creator. What's love? Well, it's whatever you tell me love is. But now you and I, we have to define that for ourselves, and that's exhausting, um, and, and it brings out a lot of anxiety. And so some of the thing, one of the things we have to wrestle with for every one of these words um, on the list, but especially with love, is how do we define it? Better yet, who? right? Who gets to define these things? And I would humbly suggest that when it comes to love, we should go right to the source. First John, first John chapter four, this whole chapter is packed full of insights about love. First John four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another, right? No one's going to argue with that, right? Same thing with the fruits. No one's going to say, I don't think we should love one another. <laughs> Everybody, no matter what you believe about, you know, different topics and whatever aisle you are in politics and all this kind of, everyone would say, well, we ought to love one another, right? Let us love one another. Yeah, that sounds good. For love comes from who? Not everybody would agree with that, right? From love comes from God. And then everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is what? God is love. That is a, a radical statement. It's the only religion that I know of that makes a claim like this. Not that God is loving. Other religions 
will suggest that there is a God and that that God is loving. To my knowledge, Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes this, this ontological claim that at his very core of personhood, love is the attribute that best describes who God is. Right? Everybody wants love. Again, no one's gonna argue, let us love one another. The question is, how do we know if we're doing that right? How do we know if what I'm doing is loving or what they're doing to me is loving? And John says, well, you know, God is love. So he's the measuring stick. He's the source I mean, doesn't that make sense, right? If God is the source of love, doesn't it make sense that he should be the ultimate authority on love? We don't get to choose our own adventure. We don't get to just make it up as we go. That's, that's where all the pain is coming from. That's where all the confusion is coming from. In verse 19, John says something even crazier. He says, the only reason that you and I are capable of love or even having this conversation about love is because... God first loved us. That without God revealing to the world love, love isn't even a thing. It's not possible. He is the source and authority on love. So what does it look like according to God, right? If, just say you agree with me on that, and you might not. You might think that's a bunch of hogwash, and that's cool. I can take it. But let, just act like you agree with me on this. If that's true, what does love look like according to not me or you, but to God, okay? Verse nine, go to verse nine, 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When I read that, the word that comes to my mind is sacrificial. Right? What is love? How did how did God define it? How did he how did he show it? He gave us his son. And what did his son do? What did Jesus do? He laid down his life. Love is sacrificial. At its very nature, love costs something. How do you know you're being loving? Is it sacrificial? Or is it really about what you want? Right? Love is when you, you put the good of someone else ahead of your own. I, I love the way um, John Mark Comer defines it. I, I looked through so many definitions of love this week besides the Bible, and I just couldn't find one that I, I really resonated with. And then I read uh, John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. John Mark used to be a pastor in Portland. Now he's a, a writer, an author, a uh, speaker. Live No Lies, easily the best nonfiction book I've read in the last few years. So you should, you should read this one. Um, here's how he defines it. He says, love is the compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. Right? Love is sacrificial. It's when you put the good of someone else ahead of your own, 
right? Even when it costs you something. How do we know that's what love is? Well, because that's what God did for me. That's the bar of what is and isn't loving. Is it sacrificial? Now, you read that quote, and I mean, it's a little bit high-flying, right? How do you, like, I'll be honest, I try to be a romantic. I've never once looked at my wife and be like, I delight in your soul, my love. Uh, (laughs) This is a little little fuzzy out there, okay? Fellas, try that this week. Let me know how it goes, all right? So what does this practically look like? Let me give you a few examples. Um, Love is when you spend most of your Saturday helping someone else tear off their roof or fix their car or driving them to doctor's appointments that aren't for you, they're for them. Even though, honestly, what you really only want to do all day long is sit on the couch and watch football. Right? Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I love football. I watched a bunch yesterday. But, but love would say, that's a good thing, but this thing, helping this neighbor over here is a God thing. I'm gonna sacrifice that good thing. I'm gonna love my neighbor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help my neighbor instead. L- love, um, love is when you go on a hike, even though you hate hiking, because your spouse enjoys it. Sorry. <laughs> Do the loving thing, Tyler. Sorry. <laughs> right, and, and here's the thing. I'm going to push a little, since you, you want to talk back, let's do this. So when you go on that hike, love doesn't go, going on a hike with my wife because she likes it, right? Ladies, does that feel like love? No, love is like, this brings joy to my friend. This brings joy to someone else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this activity. It doesn't have to be, you know, golfing with your butt, whatever, right? It's doing something maybe you don't love, but man, the other person does. That's that's love. You know, what else is love is having a baby, raising a child. Um, I think there's a reason why God made the potential, not always, but the potential end result of physical intimacy to be the production of another human being a very needy human being, (laughs) right? Love is sacrificial. Parenting is just one sacrifice after another until you die. (laughs) Like, I keep, someone told me first service, like, no, 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 eventually they come back to you and tell you they appreciate all the sacrifices. I'm like, okay, I won't wait for that, right? (laughs) I don't, like, It is just totally about this other person that really doesn't benefit you in any way, right? It is the most expensive, most exhausting. (laughs) Most love cultivating thing you've ever done with your life. True or not? And it challenges me every day because of it. I've done it three times. I'm really tired. <laughs> I'm really tired. Right? Love is sacrificial. It, it causes you to do things you don't want to do because it's not about you. That's love. 
The other thing I think you see in this scripture is that love is others-oriented, right? It faces outward. Now, <laughs> I talked about this a little bit on social media this week, but there, there's a, a popular, I'll just say pastime of American journalists to paint the preceding generation or generation after them as more selfish than them. Right? Every generation is more selfish than the other generation. So for example, and this is gonna offend some of you, but in 1976, uh, 1976, Tom Wolfe wrote an article in New York Magazine declaring that generation as the me generation. Right? You, you baby boomers, you selfish 1970 me generation. Right? Just listed all the reasons why you baby boomers are so selfish. Then 40 years later, 40 years later, Time Magazine on the front cover called my generation, the, who are, by the way, are the kids of the other generation I just mentioned, the me, 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 me generation. <laughs> and talked about, you know, just how awful, selfish, and entitled uh, my generation is. So we, we, we love to do this. I can't wait to see what they're going to say about my kids. I'm sure it'll be glowingly positive, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I raised them, so I roll, right? It, it, it just drives me crazy when we do that. Like at some point, we're gonna realize that selfishness is not a generational problem. It is a human problem. And at its core, it's a sin problem. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture, so we, we can't go that route. So instead, we find all these other ways to talk about it. Um, but the early, early church father, Augustine, or Augustine, he, he had another way of talking about this for this condition. Are you ready to do some Latin? Right, we've already hit the periodic table, so we might as well get more nerdy, right? The, the Latin phrase Augustine used was homo incurvitus in se, right? That means humanity that is curved in upon itself, right? You think of that as an arrow that starts out and comes back in, right? That is how Augustine talked about the sin nature or what Paul would call the flesh, same, same idea, using just different terminology for it, that, that you and I have this impressive ability to take the good gifts of God that are meant to be given back to him or given to others and instead selfishly twist them for our own use. And, and the more that we do that, the worse things get, the worse condition our heart, our heart gets harder and darker and even more curved in. And the antidote to that, God would just say, is love. Right? Love is what cures that condition because love requires you to not be so curved inward, but to face outward. Right? Earlier in Galatians chapter five, Paul says in verse, verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, how do you fight against the flesh? How do you fight against that turning inward? Well, you turn back outward. You, you get your focus off yourself. You get outside of yourself. You humble yourself and you look for ways to humbly serve others. 
even if you never get the credit, even if nobody knows you ever did it. And not only does that keep our hearts in better shape, Paul makes this incredible claim there, doesn't he? He says, if you do this one thing, right, if you get this thing right, if you get love right, he says, you have fulfilled the entire law. Do you know how big of a statement that is? Right? The, the tradition, Jewish tradition held that there were 613 different commands, different laws that they were to follow. And they knew them well. And Paul says, you know what? They all boil down to this one thing called love. Je- Paul's not just making this up, right? Jesus was asked the same kind of question. Like, uh, a man came up to Jesus and he said, hey, what's, what's the greatest command? Right? He was essentially asking Jesus, hey, pick from this buffet of laws, the 613. Which one of those would you say is the most important? And what does Jesus say? Love God, love others, love your neighbor. If you do those, you've summed up the whole law. You know, part of why I think um, these fruits of the Spirit are so attractive is because they're so lacking. Right? Part of what happened when we read the list and go, oh my goodness, can I imagine a world where those were just flowing everywhere? Part of, part of that is because the opposite is true, that those, those are not always operating in our world today, and we want them. Right? We've advanced in so many ways, we've come so far, but we, we can't seem to heal some of the most basic needs of human beings. I love how Mother Teresa puts it. This quote is something I've been stewing on all week long. She says, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. You think that's true? We can cure physical disease with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. And I've seen this. I've sat at the bedside of people who are dying physically, And are some of the most gracious, humble, joy-filled, expectant people because they know they're loved and they live out of that love. And then I've sat next to people who have seemingly all the days of their life ahead of them and are perfectly physically healthy and strong and but they're a mess because they feel unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. And their life shows it. We're going to take communion this morning. If you didn't get communion on the way in, uh, feel free to slip back and, and grab one of the elements. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take communion. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, let me just give you a couple things to think on and act on this week. Okay, and Remember, life groups start this week. So there's more questions out there. If you're in a sermon-based group, you can grab those off the table. They'll be on our website as well. And um, if you haven't found a group, today is kind of your last chance to, to jump into one until 
probably January. So uh, make sure you head down to Connection Point and, and get signed up for those. But for all of us, whether you're going to take those questions or not, a couple, couple things to think about this week. Um, as we start this exploration of the fruits of the Spirit, is there, is there one on that list that God maybe would put his finger on and say, that's the one I, I want to go deeper in with you right now? Like, obviously, I would love it if all nine were just flowing, right, in your life. And I think that's the ultimate goal. But maybe there's one on the list that even, even today, like as you saw it on the screen or as we read it or talked about it, maybe it's even love, I don't know. You would just say, that's, that's the one I need more of in my life. I wanna encourage you to seek God for that specific fruit. Remember, they're not your fruit or my fruit. They're the fruit of the Spirit. So invite God to work deeper that specific fruit fruit over the next nine weeks, right? Read about it. Maybe you want to look up that word in, in the Bible and find all these other verses that talk about the same, same one, that you'd constantly pray about it, ask God, hey, God, would you cultivate this, this joy, this faithfulness, this gentleness, whatever it is. God, would you do that one in me more than ever? You'd talk about it with others. You'd read about it. Like, just soak in that one specific fruit. I want to encourage you to do that. And then specifically this week, as it comes to this, this topic of, of love, why don't, we, why don't we all do something this week that's totally others-oriented? And we're not gonna come back next Sunday and like everyone line up on the stage and share what a good thing you did for somebody this week, right? That would kind of defeat the purpose. No one knows about it. You're not gonna be rewarded or paid for it. Without, you're not even asked to do it. It could be big, it could be small, it doesn't have to cost a lot. It should be sacrificial. It should cost you something if it's love. It might even just cost you a little bit of time. That's still pretty expensive. It should cost you something. And what you're gonna find as you get outside of yourself, that, that inward curve of the heart starts to straighten back out. And as you love, selfishness starts to get rooted out and replaced with the love of God. So what's one thing you can do this week? It's not for you, it's just, it's totally for us. Tyler's gonna go on a hike. What's everybody else gonna do? You better get it in before the rain comes, man. The rain's coming, you better get on it, all right? <laughs> We're gonna take communion, like I said, if you've got that there. We're gonna do it a little bit differently this morning. Sometimes we kind of do a, you know, choose your own adventure, like just take it whenever you want during the song. I just felt led this week to take it more as a, a community together. So if you'll just hold off for just a second, but you can prepare it and get the, get the elements exposed there. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask for you to hold off. This is for those of us who have put our trust in Christ. We believe that he's the Lord of not just our lives, but the whole world and uh, that our sins are forgiven in him. But you don't have to be a member of our church to to take it. We didn't even plan all this stuff to work together, but this week I just thought, if there's ever a week to do communion, it's a week when we talk about love. Right, this, you know, we're, we struggle with definitions. What is love? What does it look like? How do I know if I'm being loving? How do I know if this person is loving to me? 
These are the ultimate symbols. This is love. Right? That is love. As John says, that God would send his only son. What a sacrifice. What a gift. And then that son would lay down his life freely of his own accord. Nobody, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down because of you and me, because of that flesh, because of that sin nature, that the only reason that Jesus came was to rid us of that, to free us from that. And so on a meal he shared with his disciples, they were actually celebrating the Jewish Passover. He did an odd thing. It would have been odd to them. They were celebrating the Passover. They were celebrating this thing that happened you know, thousands of years ago in the Exodus. But Jesus transformed the meaning of that meal because he he took the piece of bread and he broke it. He gave thanks to God for it. And he said, you see this bread? It's not just bread. This bread is my body. I've broken for you. Symbol of love for you. Let's take, eat, and be grateful. And then a little while later, the same dinner, he grabbed a, a cup of wine, uh, a fruit, so to speak. And he said, this represents my blood. And some of the gospels say, which is poured out for the sins, the forgiveness of sins. It establishes a new covenant. So there's this old covenant with God that was based on the law, based on, on Israel keeping their end of the deal, which they never did. <laughs> you and I aren't so good at that either. Jesus says, this is a new covenant. This is a new relationship I'm establishing between God and his people through my blood. And you don't need to go back to the priest over and over again every time you mess up and sin. You don't need to make a new sacrifice that this is my blood, I'm gonna make a sacrifice that's gonna cover all of that for all time. Right? It's not just wine, it's not just juice. This is a representation of my blood poured out for you, the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. Thanks be to God for his love. Let's drink. Father, there's no way to express our thanks for this act of love that we don't deserve, that we don't earn. We simply receive. It is a gift. In fact, your word says in, in Romans that while we were still sinners, like we weren't even necessarily doing anything good. In fact, we were doing all the wrong things. We turned our back on you. We were in rebellion against you. It's while we were in that condition, acting out of our flesh, not keeping in step with you, that you came. Because your love, you not only love, you are 
love. And I pray that you would make us a similar people. Put your finger on one of those fruits this week, Lord. One of those is for us. You wanna take us deeper in, Lord. Help us to see that one, to seek you for it, to just soak in it. Believing that you can produce that fruit by your spirit. Give us an opportunity this week to be a blessing to someone else, to get outside ourselves with no credit, not being asked, um, no, no repayment, but just to love someone else this week. In your name, we pray, amen.